Hey everyone, it's Michael with Recreate Church. If the podcast sounds a little different today, that's because we had some technical difficulties in the morning service when we usually record. So I'm on my back porch right now, and it's kind of late at night, so you might hear some whippoorwills and some bugs in the distance. And because it is the 4th of July, our Independence Day here in America, you might hear some fireworks or some ooing and aahing kind of off in the distance. Today we celebrate our freedoms. Here in America, well, we don't get everything right. There's some things we're still working on, but I'm so thankful that we have the freedom to worship Jesus openly for about the last year. Recreate Church has been meeting in open-air services all through the winter, all through the spring, summer. Been doing it about a year now. And uh, we're out on in the busiest intersection in our town. We have the freedom to do that. I am so thankful. There's lots of places in the world where some element of what we do in our church services would be illegal. About a, one out of every four countries on earth, something we do as a part of our worship and just carrying a Bible would be illegal. So I'm very thankful we have that freedom. We don't want to take that for granted. That's not something we will always have for sure. I said that we meet in the open air. We've been doing that for about a year now, but I am excited to announce to you, Lord willing, starting next Sunday, we will be meeting indoors inside our facility for the morning service. That is very exciting for us. I'm sure there'll be a learning curve. You know, it's been a year and a half since we've been indoor for services when COVID shut us down. It was all video messages at first, and then we've had open services for a long time. I told the folks this morning, it's like we've been outdoor dogs for a long time. We've got to learn how to be indoor dogs, so <laughs> we'll see what we can do to get back in the groove. Our evening services will remain outdoors. That way, any folks who have to be especially careful about social distancing, who aren't just quite ready to get back into the fray, will have that option. So uh, we'll also, Lord willing, be meeting for kind of just a fun little informal get-together this coming Saturday. And uh, we'll have a good time for that. That'll be Saturday at 6 p.m. at our facility at 105 East Stewart Drive, Hillsville, Virginia. That will be on Saturday the 10th, 6 p.m. Get some pizzas, hang out, and sort of reclaim our worship space. Then, Lord willing, on the morning of the 11th, we'll have our services. So thankful for that. Thankful for freedom. Thankful for Jesus more than anything. Today, I I want to talk to you about someone who is going to threaten freedom. One of the greatest bad guys in all of prophecy. And we could argue, besides Satan himself, the greatest bad guy that there will ever be. In fiction and in history, often the most effective bad guys start off looking like the good guys. That's part of how they gain their power. They look like the person with the answers to all the pressing problems around them. Of course, most of history's dictators don't start out with the message of oppression and authoritarianism. No, no, they appear to be on the side of the little guy. But that doesn't last. It's only after they've gotten the power they seek that their true nature is revealed. Many of the worst atrocities in human history have happened in part Because people trusted leaders who looked good at first. In our study of the end times, 
we're going to meet a leader who will seem perfect at first. He'll manage to do what no one has ever done. He will create peace in the Middle East, or it'll look that way for a while. He'll rise up during the days of great turmoil and bring in what seems to be wise leadership. He'll be so amazing that a lot of people will assume God's power is with him, and some will even worship him as God. But eventually, he will be revealed as the most sadistic, cruel, and evil ruler the world has ever seen. We're talking, of course, about the Antichrist. That's a term that gets thrown around a lot and applied to people, maybe when it shouldn't be. Um, throughout history, people have labeled those who they consider evil or who they really disagree with as the Antichrist. <laughs> kind of like how people in politics like to call their political opponents Hitler. Neither of those labels should be applied lightly. There are lots of evil people, but only Hitler was Hitler. And while there will be lots who are anti-Christ, there will be only one who is the Antichrist. Through the years, folks have tried to identify the Antichrist. They usually point to some political or religious leader. In the earliest days of uh, Christ followers, a lot of the, the early Christians thought it must be the cruel emperor Nero. Nero was the guy who burned Rome and blamed it on the Christians and and began the systematic persecution of the Christians, but it wasn't Nero. Later on, after the Protestant Reformation, these Protestant leaders insisted the Antichrist must be the Pope, but it turns out it wasn't the Pope, none of the various popes. And about every powerful world leader has been accused of being the Antichrist. When Napoleon rose to power, some people insisted he must be the Antichrist. Later on, Gorbachev, who I can remember when I was a kid, you know, the, the Russian leader, he was supposed to be the Antichrist. And interestingly, almost every American president, somebody has suggested that person must be the Antichrist. My deep, serious study of the identity of the Antichrist was first inspired by someone who insisted that the president at that time was the Antichrist and and tried to prove it to me and I studied out the scriptures and it just didn't fit and I had to come back to him and say, hey, I love you in the Lord, but I can't agree. As a matter of fact, I believe the scriptures show us the Antichrist is not someone we can identify before it is time for him to be revealed. It is very possible, of course, for leaders in our current age to be anti-Christ. We're probably going to see that more and more as time goes by, that leaders and governments and the powers that be will become more anti-Christ, anti-Christian. The Apostle John said that anyone who denies the deity of Christ is an antichrist. However, there will be one who is the antichrist, fulfilling a specific role during the tribulation period. So, Let's see if we can do this. <laughs> you ever taken a big bite of something only to realize you've bitten off more than you could chew? Like a like a tough piece of steak and you bite off it, the steak and, and it seems to grow in your mouth. The folks who are vegans and vegetarians, is there anything out there in the vegetable kingdom that does that? 
and maybe that's a leg up you've got on on us guys who are meat eaters. So this topic is kind of like that. You can bite off what seems to be a small piece, and it just grows and grows in your mouth, and, well, pretty soon you've got more than you can handle. So we are going to try to just take a little bitty bite of this and get the basics and give you a foundation for further study. There is one central truth I want to communicate to you today. One thing that I want you to get if you don't get anything else, and it's not a bunch of details and facts and figures about the tribulation period or even the Antichrist. Here's what I want you to get. This is the point. Here it is. Don't make a Christ out of anybody or anything but Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Don't make a Christ out of anything or anybody but Jesus Christ. The whole idea of the Antichrist at the heart is that it's the devil's attempt to replace Christ, to put someone in the place where the true Christ should go. And the devil is not going to wait until the tribulation period to do that. He's been doing it since the beginning, and he'll do it even now. The devil will try to replace Christ in your life. He'll try to fool you into putting something or someone in the place where Jesus should go. So here we go. Let's study this out. How about we go to the book of Revelation? That seems like the right place to start, doesn't it? The book of Revelation was written by the apostle John, the last living of the 12 disciples of Jesus. This, the writing of Revelation took place about 60 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. And John at this point is very elderly, probably 90 or older. This is about 95 AD. And he was given this vision about the end times. Starting in about chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, we have a description of the events of the tribulation period. God gave John this vision and he recorded it for us. The tribulation period is that seven-year time period of intense judgment that is most associated with the end times. When you mention the end times, people think of the tribulation, although there's a lot more to it than that. So the first of the figures we meet are sometimes called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's a phrase that we hear from time to time, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Way back when I was a kid, I remember this professional wrestling team that was, they called themselves the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There were four guys on the team and the cast of characters changed through the years. But one of the original four horsemen of the apocalypse was the one and only wheeling, dealing, kiss, stealing, limousine, riding, jet flying, real world champion, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Woo! Uh, I don't want you guys to think that I'm like the world's biggest Ric Flair fan. I'm not really, but but I kind of feel his battle cry of the woo. I sort of get that, you know. The biblical four horsemen have nothing to do with wrestling. Three of them represent conditions that will be prevalent during the tribulation period: war, famine, and death. That's the the riders on the red horse and the pale horse and the black horse. But the first of the four horsemen, while also representing conquest, represents a person. And I want to read that scripture for you. This is Revelation 6, 2. Don't know how well it'll come through in the recording, 
but it seems like all my neighbors are setting off fireworks right now. So if you're popping or crackling or something in the background, that's what it is. It's folks celebrating the birth of their nation by blowing up a small part of it. <laughs> so let's read this, Revelation 6, 2, and I'll say a prayer for us. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that we live in a nation where we are free to worship you openly. And I pray we'll be able to hold on to those freedoms. I want to lift up our brothers and sisters in places in the world where their freedoms are limited. And I pray that you will protect them. And Lord, in this time as we study the Antichrist, will you help us to understand above all that the devil wants to influence us to put other things in the place the true Christ should go. And I pray you will put us on our guard for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation 6-2, we have this rider on a white horse. Who is this guy? Who's the rider on the white horse? In the old stories, isn't it always the hero who rides a white horse? Isn't it supposed to be the good guy in the way back cowboy movies? The good guy rode the white horse and, and wore the white hat. If this is the, could it be the good guy? Could this be Jesus, perhaps? And the picture of conquering the earth is maybe a symbol of the gospel covering the earth? Or, or maybe how Jesus is going to come back and establish his kingdom? Is it Jesus? No, this is not Jesus. When Jesus comes back, there will be peace and prosperity and righteousness. But this rider on a white horse is followed by war and famine and death. The day is coming when Jesus will return and set up his kingdom, but this isn't him. However, it's not surprising that this rider on the white horse could be mistaken for Jesus because this is Satan's imitation of Jesus, the Antichrist. Have you noticed that the devil never offers anything real? The devil only offers twisted imitations of the real thing. The devil offers addiction as an imitation of peace. The devil offers lust as an imitation of love. Hatred as an imitation of justice. Greed as an imitation of security. Entertainment as an imitation for meaning. Self-righteousness as an imitation for forgiveness. The Antichrist will be Satan's evil imitation of the true Christ. The prophetic scriptures call him by many names. The Antichrist is not a term you'll see very often. Here's some other names that you'll see that you need to be on the lookout for. Well, in this passage we just read, he's called the rider in the, on the white horse. In 2 Thessalonians, he's called the lawless one, the man of sin and the son of perdition. Way back in the book of Daniel, he's called in one place the little horn. That sounds weird, but it fits in with the symbolism of the prophecy in that spot. In the book of Revelation, he's called the beast and the dragon, and there may be some more names that I missed somewhere along the way. But we're going to call him, for the most part, the Antichrist today. The Antichrist will in, emerge in the early days of the tribulation and conquer the world. But I don't think he'll do it with military power, at least not at first. 
Did you notice what the Antichrist had in his hand, if you read in Revelation 6-2? He has a bow. He has a bow. That's a weapon. But what does he not have? He doesn't have those things that you need to put with a bow in order for the bow to be effective. He doesn't have any arrows. He has a bow, but no arrows. And I believe this points to how he will conquer the world not by force, but by diplomacy and by cunning and by slick politics. When he first appears on the scene, he's not going to look like a warlord. He's going to look like an arbiter of peace. As a matter of fact, his claim to fame initially will be spearheading the most remarkable peace treaty in history. And for that, we need to go to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. This is in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, the prophecy of Daniel has rightly been called the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. If you're going to make a serious study of Revelation, you're also going to have to make a serious study of the book of Daniel. So this is Daniel 9, 27. Fair warning. This is part of one of the most complicated prophecies in the whole Bible. We just don't have time to do it justice today. Sometime if you want to sit down or you want to send me an email, you can email me at recreate.worldwide at gmail.com and we'll see if we can get some answers for you if you'd like to know more. But I'm just going to take off the tiniest little bite of this and apply it to where we are. Daniel 9.27 goes like this. Let's read it and see what we can make of it. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even unto the consummation which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Okay, I know that's a big mouthful here, but let's get what we can. The prophecy tells us that the Antichrist will confirm a covenant. The language we might use today is that he will be the arbiter of a peace treaty. He will be the third party who works out a peace deal between two groups who are hostile towards one another. In this particular case, it is a peace treaty between the nation of Israel and its enemies. Israel, the political entity, has very few friends in the world, mostly the United States and a few other countries, but not many. The neighboring countries around it are openly hostile. Many of them don't recognize Israel as a valid state, and some of them have vowed to destroy it. Managing to create real peace between Israel and its enemies will be an amazing accomplishment, and he will do that. Hey, if you hear any bangs in the background, I just want to reiterate, those are fireworks. No one's shooting any guns out of here, although I'm, I'm kind of out in the country, and they might do that during the day. Just fireworks going on in the background right now, if you can hear that. So... The verse says the treaty will be for one week. Well, that doesn't sound very much. Sound like very long at all. One week? Do you mean seven days? No. When you study out the context, you learn that this isn't a week of days. This is a week of years. So it's not seven days in duration. It's seven years in duration. That's a much longer peace treaty. The treaty will be for seven years of peace. Seven years. Wait a minute. Isn't that prophetically significant? 
Don't we see a period of seven years corresponding to the tribulation time and time again? Yes, that's right. The tribulation is supposed to be seven years long. And in the book of Revelation, we see the periods of three and a half years repeatedly. We see two sets of three and a half years and three and a half plus three and a half equals seven. This peace treaty is for the seven years of the tribulation period. This treaty is the event that actually officially begins the tribulation. The rapture of the church does not do that. It is this treaty. This prophecy doesn't go into a lot of specifics about what all is included in the peace treaty, but since it talks about the sacrifices and offerings, then it will evidently allow the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Right now, that seems like an utter impossibility because the Muslim Dome of the Rock Mosque is on that site in Jerusalem. You can imagine how unlikely it would be for the temple to be rebuilt there currently. So somehow the Antichrist is going to work that out and it will just be this thing that amazes everyone naturally. As a result of arbitrating this peace agreement and getting the temple rebuilt, this Antichrist will be viewed as a great hero of Israel. Some people will believe he is the long-awaited Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. They both mean the anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. The Israelites expected their Messiah to be a political leader. Now, that was one of their biggest problems with Jesus. They expected the Messiah to come and give them political deliverance, but when Jesus showed up, he offered spiritual deliverance. They expected Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom, but he said his kingdom is not of this world. How interesting it is that though we acknowledge the greatest problems of humanity are spiritual, we so often seek solutions that are primarily political. The day is coming when Jesus will come and establish his kingdom, and it will be universal. It'll be all over this world and all over creation. But that's not why he came at first. So many of the Jewish people were disappointed. They expected a political deliverer, and he didn't give them that. He gave, came first as a spiritual deliverer. They didn't understand he was coming again to finish the job. So when this Antichrist shows up, they're going to think, wait a minute, this must be the Messiah we've always been promised, but he will not be the Messiah they promised. This is the false Messiah, the Antichrist. So he's going to show up as this false Messiah, and he appears to bring peace to the Middle East, but Daniel tells us he will break the peace treaty halfway through, or as he says, in the middle of the week. Half of seven years is three and a half years. That is a period of time that is mentioned multiple places in the book of Revelation, although it is listed as 42 months, or I think it's something like 1,280 days, something like that. You can look that up to verify and let me know. For the first half of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will appear to be the good guy, more or less. But halfway through, he will be revealed as completely evil. By then, though, his grip on the world will be so complete, it'll be too late and even when people realize he's a bad guy, his control will be so complete 
that they won't be able to get away from him. He will effectively be the king of the world. The event where the true nature of the Antichrist is revealed is sometimes called the abomination of desolation. What a term, abomination of desolation. The Antichrist will enter the restored temple and defile it, putting an end to the offerings. There's an important New Testament passage that gives us some insight on the Antichrist and on this particular event. That is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be reading 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10, and this is where we're going to be spending the rest of our time in this message. So I'm going to read this for you. It's kind of lengthy, so bear with me. It's all important, and it goes like this, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Catch that phrase, he who now restrains. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Wow, there's a lot there. This was written originally to a church in the Greek city of Thessalonica. That city still exists to this day. The Apostle Paul was writing to give them some comfort. This was a church that he had started, and he wasn't there anymore. He was off starting other churches and he'd left them behind and they were doing their thing. But they were getting a lot of mixed messages about the end times. Life was starting to get really tough. Pretty soon the persecution under Nero was going to get fired up. And all the struggles of they were facing were making them wonder if the tribulation period had already begun. And some people were insisting it already had begun. Kind of an interesting thing would show up on my my news feed from time to time kind of a joke last year during 2020 you know let's wake up walk outside and see which chapter of revelation we're doing today because it seems like so many strange events were happening of course the real events of revelation will be far beyond anything we can imagine here lord willing we'll talk about the tribulation next week and you'll get a bit more of that but uh, the apostle paul wrote to them to clear up the confusion and he said, whoa, 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 the tribulation hasn't started yet. Don't freak out just yet. There's some other things that have to happen first. And he mentions two specific things that we picked up in the text. There in verse 3, he said, the falling away must come first. The falling away. Down in verse 7, he said, 
he who now restrains must be taken out of the way. Well, what do these things mean? I've studied out this passage many times. I wanted to know what I'm talking about here. This is something I've studied for years, and I think I've got a handle on it. And Let me lay it out there for you. So, first of all, the restraining power. The restraining power must be taken out of the way, so says 2 Thessalonians 2.7. So, what is the restraining power that restrains the work of the devil in this world? What is that power? Well, we have a very clear indication here. It says, he, it uses the pronoun he. He who now restrains. Who is the he who restrains the work of the devil? Well, clearly that's God and specifically the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit restrains the work of the devil on this earth. So where is the Holy Spirit right now? Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? The Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of believers. What an amazing truth. If you are a true Christian, if you have asked Jesus to be your Savior, if you have been remade in Him, then you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. That is both comforting and intimidating. It's comforting to know that you are never, ever alone. God is always with you. And it's kind of intimidating to be reminded that whatever stuff you're doing, you're dragging the Holy Spirit along with you. And what a... What a thought that the mean stuff we do, the bad or evil or wicked stuff we do, the wrong stuff we do, we're not doing it on our own. We're dragging the Holy Spirit along with us, and he's trying to show us the right way, and we're still doing the wrong way. So that that's a bit of a sobering thought. But for our purposes here today, we see that in order for the tribulation to begin and the, the Antichrist to be revealed, the Holy Spirit has to be taken out of the way. But the Holy Spirit dwells in believers. In order to take the Holy Spirit out of the way, you would have to take the believers out of the way, the church out of the way. Will there be a time when the church is taken out of the world? Yes, there is. We call that event the rapture, the rapture of the church. The believers will be taken out. There will be a a period of time where all the believers are taken, and that links into the other thing that Paul said must come first, they kind of go together, the falling away. The falling away must come first. What does that mean? The direct translation from the Greek is apostasy. The falling away is apostasy. What's apostasy? Apostasy is when someone says they believe something, but they don't really believe it. Say they believe it, but they don't believe it. Say they believe in Christ, but they don't really believe in Christ. There's, of course, lots and lots of people who would claim to be a Christian, but they've never really given their heart to Jesus. And and sometimes that's evidenced by the way they treat people. I've said many, many times, the way you treat people is one of the best evidences to your faith. If you're not treating people right, something is wrong in your relationship with God. So, the falling away. Will there be a point in the prophetic timeline when all the true believers are taken away, leaving behind only people who claimed to believe, but didn't really? 
Yes, there will be. That event is, again, the rapture of the church. In the rapture of the church, which we studied before, all of the true believers will be taken out of the world, and there won't be a single true believer on the planet for at least a short period of time. It, it will only be people who claimed to be followers of Jesus or thought they were followers of Jesus and weren't. So for a short period of time, no true believers on the planet. However, I've got to believe that in the moments or minutes or hours or days following the rapture of the church, more people will turn to Jesus in those moments than maybe ever before because the prophecy will clearly have come true and people will realize, oh my goodness, this is what I was warned about by that crazy preacher on the street corner in Hillsville, Virginia. We were told that the rapture was going to come and the true believers were going to be snatched away and it's happened. It's all true. I need to follow Jesus and Jesus will receive them with open arms. However, now they won't get to escape the trials and tribulations of the tribulation period. Bottom line though, it's only after the church is out of the way that the Antichrist can be revealed. That is prophetically clear, not to mention a practical necessity. This passage says the people who have rejected Christ will believe the lies and the false satanic miracles of the Antichrist. But the true believers won't be fooled. How could the Antichrist possibly accomplish his purpose when there may be hundreds of millions of true followers of Jesus who will recognize him right away? It would be very difficult because all the Christians who have heard anything about this would say, well, obviously this guy's the Antichrist and he won't be able to silence them all that quickly. So, full confession here, I'm convinced from the scriptures that the rapture of the church happens prior to the tribulation period. But let's just say I'm wrong, and real believers, Christians, will not be pulled out of the world before the tribulation period. Well, I'll just say this. If I'm still around for all this, I'm going to do my very best to make so much trouble for the Antichrist that he wishes... I had been taken out of this world. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be taken out of this world. I think the scriptures show us that. But in case I'm wrong, I'm going to go ahead and plan to be a problem for the Antichrist if I'm around for that. hope you'll do the same. So Paul hearkens back to the passage from Daniel about the Antichrist defiling the temple. We'll get a very important additional detail here. When the Antichrist enters the temple, he will declare himself to be God. The Antichrist is Satan's counterfeit, imitation of Christ. And since Christ is God, the Antichrist will claim to be God. For the last half of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will not only set himself up to be the king of the world, he'll also set himself up as the God of this world. The book of Revelation describes how he'll build a false religion around himself, complete with a high priest, known as the false prophet, and an identifying mark, which is called the mark of the beast. Oh, wait, that rings a bell, the mark of the beast? Yep, that's what it's for. It will be a mark of allegiance to the Antichrist. So all of that sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? Pretty terrible. And we're going to learn just how much more terrible it is, Lord willing, next week when we study the tribulation period. But here is the good news. We're told the true Christ 
will destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist is going to have his time. He's going to have his years, but it will not last. We know the devil wants to fool us with an imitation of Christ. But the good news is you can trust Christ now. You can trust him now and be saved. You can escape the terrible reign of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. You can have hope and peace and life and renewal and forgiveness and deliverance in Jesus. More than any other thing, we here at Recreate Church want you to get to know Jesus. We don't want things from you. We want things for you. And the number one thing we want for you is for you to find new life and meaning and hope and peace and forgiveness and all those other things in Jesus. So as we're wrapping this up, let's recap what we've learned from the scriptures about the Antichrist. Here are seven truths about the Antichrist. If you're a note taker, these would be good notes to jot down. As you're listening to the podcast, you can always pause it and write them down and go back and catch anything you missed. So here we go. Number one, the Antichrist will not be revealed until the beginning of the tribulation. Second Thessalonians 2.3. So if someone says, hey, I know who the Antichrist is, I'll say, okay, I don't think you do because the scriptures show us he will not be revealed until the tribulation and we're not in that yet. Number two, the believers must be removed before the Antichrist is revealed. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 7. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, and the Holy Spirit has to be taken out of the way before the Antichrist is revealed. The falling away must come first, so he, he can't be revealed just yet. Number three, the Antichrist will rise to power as the hero who makes peace in the Middle East. Daniel nine twenty seven. There's no indication that he will be a powerful world leader before then. So if someone comes to me and points to some world leader and says, oh, I think they're the Antichrist, I, I just don't think that fits the scriptures because the Antichrist does not seem to be someone you will have heard about before. He kind of appears on the scene and he brokers this peace treaty and that's where he gets his start. Number four, he will be empowered by Satan and will deceive those who reject the true Christ. That's 2 Thessalonians to nine. Number five, halfway through the seven years, the Antichrist will break the treaty, defile the temple, and declare himself to be God. Daniel nine twenty seven and Second Thessalonians two four. Number six, he will have world domination for the last half of the tribulation period. That is Revelation thirteen one through ten. During that time, he will persecute those who have become followers of Jesus during the tribulation and kill many of them. And number seven, at the end of the tribulation, the true Christ will appear and destroy the Antichrist, casting him into the lake of fire. That is 2 Thessalonians 2.8 and Revelation 19.20. The scriptures tell us more about the Antichrist, but that's plenty to start with. That gives you a foundation for further study. All this stuff's interesting, isn't it? All this end time stuff, yeah, it's really interesting. But if it's only interesting information, what good is it really? 
We've had a question that's guided us through our study of the end times. It comes from 2 Peter 3.11, and it goes more or less like this. Seeing all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons should we be? In other words, knowing that this world we live in will someday come to a conclusion, how should it affect the way we live? It should make us want to live for God and not for this world. So knowing that the end times are coming, it should change the way we live here and now. So let's consider it. If we know Satan wants to trick people into trusting a false Christ, what should that mean to us? What it should mean to us? Well, we should live with the awareness that the devil will always try to fool us into trusting something in the place of Jesus. The devil would have us trust in our own righteousness and immorality. The devil would have us trust in our money and our stuff. The devil would have us trust in our own cleverness or ability or ability to network our social circle. The devil would have us trust in false teachers and false theology. And the devil would have us trust in merely human leaders as if they could save us. Now, some of these things aren't bad. It's not bad to have a network. It's not bad to have ability. It's not bad to have money. But if you trust them in the place of Jesus... They are going to fail you. Even the best leaders, we've spoken of the Antichrist as a leader, but even the very best leaders in the world, and there are good and bad leaders in the world, even the best ones are merely human. Even the good ones have flaws and, yes, agendas. So what was that line, that central thought of the whole message, the thing we need to take home with us? It's this, we must not make a Christ out of anybody or anything except Jesus Christ. All these other things might be good. You got blessings, wonderful. But they can't take the place of Jesus. You got family who loves you. That is awesome. That's one of the greatest gifts you could have. But even the best people who love you the most cannot fulfill the role that Jesus is meant to have in your life. You've got talent. You've got ability. Awesome. Good for you. I hope you use it for God. But you can't lean on that and miss out on leaning on Jesus Jesus is the only Christ. We don't know when all this end time stuff is going to happen, but we know it's on our way. It's almost as if we can hear the hoof beats of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the distance. And that being the case, the only sensible thing we can do is trust Jesus now. Trust Jesus now. That way we won't even have to endure the tribulation period and all these awful things. We'll be in heaven. We'll be in heaven. What a wonderful thing. God has made a way of escape. And it's through Jesus. And we encourage you to trust in Jesus. If you need to know more about it, what it means to be forgiven and and be saved, go to our website, recreatechurch.org, and and click or tap on, on that option on the menu where it says how to be forgiven. How to be forgiven. Um... I just want to remind you before we close up in prayer that, Lord willing, we will be back inside of a facility next week. And if my count is right, I think we'll be up to podcast number 100. It'll be the 100th podcast and um, celebration. I know that some podcasts give away stuff. We're not really in a position to do that, but we do hope you'll pray for our church. Look for it this week if you're one of our locals and you can make it come to the Saturday night get together come to the Sunday morning services and and if you want to volunteer for our kids ministry we'll have that information up on the website this week so look for that 
As we're finishing up here, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the true Christ and the promise of salvation through him. I want to pray for everyone receiving this message that they might confess their sins and be saved and call upon the name of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Been so nice having you with me. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some uh, bugs and some fireworks in the background if that came through on the recording. My hope and my prayer is the next podcast you hear will be recorded from inside our facility at 105 East Stewart Drive in Hillsville. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful night. Happy Independence Day to those in America, those around the world. God bless you too. Pray God will bless you right where you are. We'll talk to you next time.